This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. The purpose of a goal is to be appropriate in the moment. And every year we set goals around the areas of our life that mattered us. And for I think for a lot of people, year after year after year, you get to the end of the year and you look at those goals and you go, oh, I'll do better next year, especially when it comes to finances. But the challenge is until you learn how to have the relationship with your goals, your future won't actually change. When we look at some of the biggest causes of stress in our life, money often ends up being it. And all of us feel like we are meant for more, that we should be earning more. We want to deliver a better future for our kids than we had for ourselves. Yet we were never actually taught in school how to build wealth. What it actually looks like to set goals for our wealth and then have a relationship with them. The person you are going to meet did exactly that. He started out, as a police officer with a dream to build wealth. And he made some crazy sacrifices to start acquiring properties. And wait till you hear where he is now. The thing that I want you to listen for, what did he do that made everything else easier or unnecessary? With that, let's get into this episode with Keller Williams agent and mortgage broker and co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, Mr. David Green. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. David, I'm so excited to have you on the show, my friend. Thank you very much, Jeff. That was a very kind intro. I appreciate you, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, I want to go back to the beginning. Take us back to when you were a police officer. What was going on in your world that made you realize you wanted to start building wealth through real estate? Well, it's really not a surprise if you watch the news that the profession of law enforcement and the relationship they have with the community started a big shift. It was clear that things were changing. And if you continued with business as usual, you weren't going to be happy. I saw that showing up with the public's mistrust of law enforcement. And then on the law enforcement side, with um, their lack of contentness and happiness, it was getting to be a very negative environment everywhere you looked. And I knew that I didn't get into that profession in order to watch it become what it did. And I had seen that it was amazing for me personally with some of the growth that I went through, things that I just needed in my life where I had lacked getting growing up. And I saw that God had kind of walked me through this process where I gained a lot of the things that led to me being a happier, more confident person through it. But my passion for it was starting to go away. And I started to notice that there was other things that I was drawn to. And so from a practical perspective, I could see this is not the same thing that I got into. And then from a 
emotional standpoint, I could just see that like my heart really isn't in this anymore. And that's not a job you want to be in if your heart's not in it. So I knew that there was something that I had to do different, but I also recognized no one's doing this for me. No one's coming to rescue me from this situation and saying, hey, David, you're not happy. So we're going to touch you on the head with our magic wand and we're going to fix it for you. Mm. Why real estate? You know, I had never planned on getting into law enforcement and I never planned on getting into real estate. I <laughs> bought I bought a rental property because my buddy that was going to Bible college was going to lose his earnest money deposit and I wanted to be a good friend. And I thought, hey, I'll, I'll need to buy a house at some point to live in. I'll just buy this one and rent it out. And then when I'm ready and I have a family, I'll move into it. So I bought my first house and then it went terrible. Like it often does when you start anything new. And so I had to learn a little bit more about it to stop it from being terrible. And then once I figured out you could use property managers and really it's kind of simple. You look at what the thing costs to own and you look at what the rent is and at the rent's more than you make money. And next year, my mom pointed out a house that was for sale down the street. I had always been good at saving money because like I said, I knew I wanted to get out of law enforcement. So I kind of needed to have a plan and I figured I'd need some money to do it. So I just went and bought that house. And now I got two houses and my property manager is reporting to me about two deals. And it sort of just became a part of my life. I completely backed up into this thing. Next year, my grandmother died. And I thought, well, I buy houses. Maybe I should just buy this house. So I bought her house and rented it out. And at that point, my identity started to move into, I am a real estate investor. People thought of me when they thought of real estate. I saw myself that way. And I think that's when I started to take steps about purposefully setting up dominoes to to see improvements in that part of my life. So before we dive into the nitty gritty of how you started to save the money, because I know people are going, all right, sounds really simple, but Saving up money to buy a house is actually a pretty big thing. Mm. I want to fast forward to where you are today. How many homes do you own? I have just under 40 houses right now. And if you look at the equity that you have in those homes, which for people, if we want to um, break it really down, look at the value of the home, less the mortgages that you have, that delta is your equity. What's the equity in that? It's a little over $5 million. Which means that your net worth is at least over $5 million. That's correct. Okay. So multi-multi-millionaire. And those houses throw off cash flow. Yes, sir. What does that look like? It's about eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a month right now. Okay, so from cop wanting to do something different, wanting to have a different financial future, you now have at least five million dollars in net worth just in the equity of those homes, plus over two hundred thousand dollars a year in passive income. Before we even get to your day job. Cool. That's right. Cool. So let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I know from personal experience, um, living on a budget is hard, right? Especially for a lot of people where they start to make more money and they allow their lifestyle to rise and then they normalize that lifestyle and then they make a little bit more money and they allow the lifestyle to rise and they normalize it and then the money goes down and then they're trapped. What did it look like for you to actually start saving money on a police officer's salary? Well, the first thing that I had to understand about saving money was that it's very simple. It's kind of like losing weight. You burn calories and you try to eat well. It's not a complicated process, but it's a difficult one. And I recognized that when it came to money, as a police officer, the only way to make more was to work overtime. So I had to build a life around my ability to work overtime. I couldn't get a dog. Right, There were times I just wasn't driving home. I had to sleep in my car and get up and work again, 18-hour shifts, 20-hour shifts. So I made decisions that would support the goal that I had. I knew 
I am going to work overtime. We're in a time that I knew was a good time to buy rentals. We had just come out of a recession. Interest rates were pretty low. There was a lot of demand from tenants. And I looked at it like that feeling you get when you're playing Super Mario Brothers and you get the star. You got that (laughs) short period of time to run as fast as you can and anything you touch isn't going to hurt you. And you got to make the most of it. And so I just hit a dead sprint. I said, I don't know how long this little window, this bonus round is going to last, but I really want to get after it. So I made decisions that made that goal easier. And then I noticed the people around me that did not have a goal to save. When there's a kind of an aimlessness about you, you don't know where you're trying to get to. You tend to rely on things that make you feel good that I call by default. I want to eat a food that tastes good. I want to go get drunk and watch a football game. I want to go to Vegas and party. You're doing things that no one really as a little child says, I want to grow up and just party in Vegas all the time. You have a dream that you want to do. And when you don't pursue it, that stuff sort of just by default takes the place of what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that every time I saved another $10,000 and I saw my bank account go up, or I knew I worked a really hard week, but I did better than I expected I was going to do, or I bought another rental property and I watched that passive income creeping up, I got this jolt of dopamine that felt really good. It was the same reward that you get when you go work out or you set a goal to to do anything and you make progress with it. And I started to recognize that those Vegas trips that my cop buddies were taking or the alcohol or whatever it was that made people happy was actually robbing them of the ability to feel good by doing the things that were going to get them somewhere. They would work a ton of overtime and then they would go spend it all and they'd have to come right back and work again. So I was working harder than them, but not a lot harder. And I was the only one that was actually making progress. And I think that was my first experience with protecting yourself from the wrong things is just as important as pursuing the right things. Ooh, well, you're striking a chord with me because you know when I was in medical sales, I heard you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Looked at my five, realized I have five amazing friends and I was missing five amazing mentors. And when you, when you get clarity on that thing that you want, for you, it was starting to buy rental properties. For me, it was pursuing the path of entrepreneurship. You start to realize that gap. Like I remember so profoundly having conversations with some of my closest friends and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm telling you about my entrepreneurial dream and you're cutting it down without even being qualified to speak to it. What did it look like to shift those relationships? It was that was probably the hardest part for me. So I got, to be honest, very lucky that my original mentor in the business, Tim Road, had been reaching out to me. And basically, it was on his heart to move me out of law enforcement. I didn't know it, but he felt like that was one of the things he was supposed to do in life was to build me up and say, Hey, you can do more than this. So he introduced me to some guys in a group called GoBundance. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I even realized I was a millionaire. I didn't track my net worth. I didn't really understand the concept of net worth. I did not know what I was worth. I just knew I had a bunch of houses. I could have told you that, you know, they cash flow four grand a month or something at the time. Uh, When they started talking to me and I realized I'm a millionaire, there was a shift in how I saw myself. It seems silly because it's just a word, it doesn't matter. But I sort of carried myself with a higher set of expectations when I realized I'm a millionaire. People are looking up to me. It matters what I do. The decisions I make matter more. The words I choose to say have more weight to them. So I need to think about this stuff. And those guys in GoBundance basically were very impressed with what I had done. And they said, you need to get out of being a police officer. If you can do this while doing that, imagine what you could do. 
And I still doubted. This is part of why you want to surround yourself with good people because I argued with them and said, I'm not that special. I'm not that smart. I just work harder than everyone. And basically, they pinned me down and said, you are committing whatever year this was, 2016, I think, to not working any overtime that is not forced on you. And all of the time that you used to spend on overtime, you're going to work towards a different goal. Pick one. And I looked around and said, I don't know what else it would be. I'll get my real estate license because I kind of know real estate and I'll give that a shot. And that was how I got brought into Keller Williams. And that was really what it took to rip me out of the pattern that I established for myself of just working 100-hour weeks. I think there's an important theme here that's worth calling out, which is the purpose of a goal is not to achieve the result. It's to be appropriate in the moment. Oftentimes when we set goals that are really big, I mean, Gary Keller flat out tells us to set goals that are so far beyond what we even think is possible that we actually have to redesign who we would have to become to earn the right to achieve it. You have to surround yourself with people and you have to educate yourself. What did that look like for you to actually educate yourself so that you could go on this journey? That's really good. The first thing that I learned, which is the first thing we all learned when we make a decision to quote unquote step up into a new realm, is all the ways you are not good. (laughs) The first day that you go to the gym when you haven't been working out, you don't have to wonder if you're in shape. You know. A set of stairs will remind you that you're not in shape. For me, my personality had become so rigid and my introverted side had become so powerful that I could not hold an open house because I couldn't make myself go introduce myself to the people that walked in the door. And for people that know me now as this version of David, they sometimes they just don't believe it. But people that knew me then will tell you, I would bring Krista with me. She would go meet the person that walked in the door and come say, this is David. He's the agent. And that I needed that warm introduction just to get me over. I don't know what to say to people that I don't know. So it, to me, I describe it as my personality was like a bodybuilder and this was yoga. I couldn't bend. I was not flexible. I did not show my cards. I wanted to read you without letting you see who I was. And that's mm-hmm. terrible when you're trying to build trust in relationships. I didn't value relationships. They weren't that important to me as a police officer. In this world of real estate, people would send deals to someone and not to me because they felt more comfortable with someone else. And that was shocking. Like, what do you mean comfortable? I'm smarter. I know more. I'm going to get them more money. That's not what people valued. So I had to start immediately noticing these are weaknesses in my personality that in this world will really hurt me and commit to working on them. And your original question was, who did I have to surround myself to do that? And and how did you educate yourself along the way? That's what it was. I started listening to every podcast for real estate agents that I could possibly find and listening to what the top producers did. And what I found, I would listen to three podcasts a day. That was my rule. Every day, I wake up, I put one on, I'm getting ready. I can knock one out before I get to work. I listen to half of one during my lunch and the other half on the way home. And then that evening, I listened to another one when I was working out or whatever I was doing. It was exposing myself to the way that they thought and realizing this is so different than how I think. They're always talking about being vulnerable, relationships, networking, being kind, being patient. And that I was just of the mindset of you just got to be better at what you do than other people and people will recognize it. So the continual exposure to how the people who were good at it thought made me very aware, I'm not like that. I'm not good at this. And it gave me the path that I needed that if I want to be good in this world, that's who I have to become. Here's here's what um you and I are very kindred spirits because I remember being in medical sales, driving five, six hours a day throughout my territory, 
And the one thing I could do at the time was listen to podcasts or listen to audiobooks. And you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. It doesn't have to be an in-person relationship. That learning from that person can be a book. It can be the podcast. But when you start to hear the same conversations over and over and over again, you notice those patterns, your mindset starts to shift. <laughs> myself back in your shoes. You're setting goals around listening to podcasts every day, which I think is so cool. What happened as a result? My personality started to adapt and I could feel it's working out the same way that you can feel every time you go to the gym and the workouts get a little bit easier or you get mm-hmm. a little bit stronger. When your bench press was more than you really thought you would do, you start to get this excited feeling to where a workout doesn't suck. It actually starts to become something you look forward to. And for me, that the thought of getting to know a person I didn't know, I was really... A, I did not like that feeling. It started to almost become a challenge that I was looking forward to. How do I figure out what you're trying to say because you don't know what you want? You know the words you're saying are trying to express an emotion that you can't articulate. How do I get inside your head so I can figure it out? And then when you see someone's face light up when you could get to the bottom of it, it felt really good. That was a part of how I knew that I was making progress. The other thing would be people started to talk about me the way that I saw top producing realtors talked about. The comments that were made about me weren't he's a workhorse, he's a machine, he's really smart. He's he knows how to get a bad guy in custody. And they started to turn into he really helped me with this problem. After I talked to him, I felt so much better. I catch myself wanting to ask David for advice. And when I saw that was the way that I was coming across to people, I knew this was what I have to become to be good. And I think you made maybe the most impactful point of this entire podcast, which is that successful people inherently understand success is a result of becoming somebody. It's not the result of buying some product or paying for some system or getting some secret formula that gets you access to things that other people don't have. I remember hearing Gary talk about setting goals. And he shared, you know, most people set goals based on what they think they can do and what's within their comfort zone. And those are doable goals. And then there are the people that, you know, they stretch it. They go to the outer limits of their comfort zone or what they think they can do. They stretch it just a little bit. They set the stretch goals, but that's not where extraordinary lies. Extraordinary is when you go so far out into the world of possibility that you actually have to ask, who's the person I have to become to earn the right to achieve those goals? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're hitting it, man. So for you who's listening to this, look at the goals that you have for yourself. And if you feel like you can just slam dunk that thing, that it's, that it's doable for you, you have to ask the question, are you actually thinking big enough? And if you went way further out to the point that you would actually have to ask, okay, who do I have to become to achieve that type of goal? Now we're on the right track. So David, let's fast forward. Um, You are where you are now. You own a bunch of property. You've done really well. Um, You get to co-host the Bigger Pockets podcast, which is the largest real estate investor network in the world, right? Yes, sir. I remember hearing when I was hunting for mentors. If you want to build wealth, just look at the people who are the wealthiest. They got their wealth really two ways. Real estate and business ownership. That's the vast majority of it. Um, Talk to that person who knows that they may may have interest in, in starting to invest in real estate, but they're not quite sure how. 
That's how can they begin that journey? The first thing is to, I would say, write down all the things that scare you from doing it. So most of us, whether we realize it or not, maybe all of us, will make a decision based on an emotional state we're in. Even in real estate, when people say, I don't let emotions make my decision, I go by the numbers. No, those numbers impact you emotionally. It's still the same thing. You get really excited about a certain set of numbers, and then that's why you decide to move forward. And so most of us will never move forward if we don't feel good about something. We, confidence is really just like the excitement of, I want to go do this thing and I believe that I can. Whereas fear could easily be defined as, I am not confident that I can succeed in this area or fight that bear or whatever it is that's attacking you. And when you take those fears and you turn them into objective statements on a piece of paper, you A, realize many of them are unfounded. That the feeling that you have is not based or rooted in anything real that you should worry about. Or B, can actually come up with a plan to overcome that. So if you say, I don't know how to analyze a property. I don't know how to know if it's a good deal. I would say, well, let's define what a good deal is for you. And let's define how we would analyze it. And if it's simple as, would it make more money every month than it loses? You can put a plan together to determine that. And it probably is a 10-minute thing that will actually be overcome. Whereas it may have stopped you from for the last 5 years from ever taking progress because you didn't write it down. The next thing I would say is immerse yourself in the mindset of the people that do it and make an effort to take note that those people are not the Elon Musks of the world. You don't have to be an incredibly intellectually talented person to be a real estate investor. In many ways, that gets in the way. The people that do good are just the ones that grit it out that said, Hey, I want to do it. I'll figure out a way. And they came up with very, very boring ways or not hard to come up with ways to get deals. It could just be as simple as everyone thinks of you when they think of real estate and they go to you and say, Hey, my, my grandma is moving into a home. We need to sell her house. It's in bad shape. Would you want to buy it? You don't have to be Elon Musk to get those kind of opportunities. So I, the reason I say you should surround yourself with people who do it is you will realize it is not that hard. It's not that complicated. It's somewhat simple. You just have to be purposeful about it. No one's going to go out of their way to make you wealthy. They're looking for how they can become wealthy. And that's one of the first things that we have to understand is that you can have whatever you want, but you're going to have to go get it. And the best way to do that is usually to figure out some way to help somebody else achieve what they want. Right? That's one of the reasons my real estate business does well. Is people come to me and say, David, can you help me build wealth? And as a byproduct of building their wealth, I, I'm receiving commissions and it's, it's helping me hit my goals too. I know for... Gary was teaching a class on wealth building. And most people think that their biggest issue is they don't have the cash to actually take down the asset. And I remember him saying, all right, what if I were just going to cut you a check for $100,000? What would you do with it? <laughs> and the person kind of looked at him like a deer in the headlights. He said, see, that's the problem. Money's actually not the issue. If you had the money, you wouldn't know what to do with it. Because if you actually knew what to do with it and you had the deal, the money would find yourself, would find you. I hear this all the time. Now take it practically. Let's imagine that, all right, David, you're starting all over. You don't have any of the network that you have right now. And you, you listen to the show and you go, okay, I want, to real, I want to invest in real estate. And you actually start looking for deals. You find a deal and you don't have the cash. Mm -hmm. How do you go about finding it? I find a person that has the cash that doesn't have a deal because they're out there too. So let's get tactical there. I mean, really, in that moment, you realize, oh my gosh, I have, I, 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 this is a deal. I can do it. What would you do to start finding the cash? 
Okay, so let's say I find a deal that I can buy for five hundred thousand. When it's fixed up, it'll be worth six hundred fifty thousand. And I see that I can take this big single-family home, put a wall in the middle of it, put a kitchen out on the other side, and I can turn it into two different units. Each one will rent out for say uh, twenty-five hundred a unit. So it's going to rent for it. It's going to bring in a total of five thousand a month, and I run my expenses, and they're going to be four thousand dollars a month after I fix it up. I'm going to go to. I'm going to run the numbers and see if I borrow the hundred and let's say the hundred thousand dollars I need to fix it up and uh, cover the down payments. Maybe make it one hundred and fifty. Can I pay a six percent return on that money and still be covered by that thousand dollar a month cash flow? The answer would almost always be yes. So I would start talking to my network and saying, "Who do you know that wants to make a six percent return on their money secured by real estate and guaranteed by me?" So I'm doing the deal. You trust me. They know me. I've lived my life in a way that when I say I'm going to do something, people believe it. And I personally, when I borrow money from someone, I don't base it on the deal. I don't say to that person, if the deal goes bad, you could lose your money. It is absolutely okay to do that. That's how the business world works. But I know most people in my sphere are not letting me borrow money because they understand real estate. They're doing it because they trust David. And because of that, I say, hey, if this doesn't go good, I'm still going to pay you back. I will figure out the way you know, to do it. But you're secured by real estate. You're going to have this asset securing your investment that we are paid $500 for. We put $100 down on it. So we have $400,000 loan. And when it's done, it will be worth $650. There's a lot of equity in there that you could get your money back if we had to sell it. There are a lot of people out there, Jeff, that don't get a 6% return on their money. That that sounds very, very good to that don't know how to go find the deal. I find the person who actually wants to do it. I don't believe in begging people. I don't believe in pleading. If I have to try to convince you that you should do this deal, you're probably the wrong person. There's already not trust there. You look for the one who's excited about it. You use their money to put as the down payment. You make sure that they're on title. You come up with an operating agreement that they will get their money back at this point. And at that point, they will get it back with interest. You determine what that interest is going to be. You go get pre-approved for a loan. So the house itself isn't going to work for the loan because you still got to fix it up. But you you can be pre-approved or you and that person together can be. You get the scope of work from the contractor. You agree on the price. You buy the property. You fix it up. It's worth more. This is some, somewhat of the Burr method like we talked yeah. about. When it's done, you refinance it. You only pull out enough money that it will that the mortgage will be supported by the rent. You pay back the person you borrowed it from. Maybe you give them a little extra on top just to thank them for what they did and, and grease your wheels for the next time you want to borrow money from that person. You've got yourself a rental property and you've got yourself an entire project worth of experience. You learned a little bit more about the loan process. You learned a little bit more about the contractors. You learned about the type of tenants you got. Maybe you rented it out for more than $2,500 a unit and you realize that you can, your numbers were very conservative and you're going to make even more. You see what you did right and wrong and the next deal, you're that much more likely to be able to do better. So I want to pause there and point something out. If your head just spun, then you're doing it right because you're listening to the show. This is why like David, investing in your education, whether that's capital or time, you probably just learned something. And if you need to rewind that and listen to that whole thing again, you can do it because clearly David has done this a few times. Uh, David, I want to use... You, you talked about Burr and this... I think is, I love the idea of it. And I realized I actually did this with one of my houses without realizing I was doing it until the end. But I want you to walk through what is Burr investing and walk us through a time that you actually leveraged the strategy. Yeah, it's it's a cool name. 
But all that it really describes is moving around the order with which you do the things that are involved in an investment. So typically, when we think about buying a house, which I will call the traditional method, you finance it at the time you buy it. So BRRRR stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. It's the order of which you're doing all the things you do when you buy a property. Normally, buying and financing are inherent in the same step. So what happens is you go buy this property... You put your $100,000 down. I know that number is a little high because I live in California. and It's not always that much everywhere. Then you pay money to fix the house up. So you put your $100,000 down. You've put your $50,000 into the rehab. You put $150,000 into this project. Good news is it's worth six fifty, dollars and you only owe you know, four hundred. dollars So you've added $100,000 of value to that deal. Bad news is that money that you've created or that wealth you've created is sitting in the property which is good, but it's not as good as if that money is in your bank account where it can be used to get the next deal. right? Liquid cash is more useful to you than equity in a property just because you can't use equity to buy another asset. And as we know in real estate, you make your money when you buy. So the Burr method would be buying the house in a condition that makes it worth less than what it would be, then fixing it up, then putting a tenant in there. And at that point, you refinance it. Because it's worth six fifty, not five hundred, which means the bank's going to let you borrow eighty or seventy five percent of six fifty, not eighty percent of five hundred. So instead of your equity sitting in the deal, it comes out of the deal and it sits in your bank account, which you can then use to go buy the next deal. And and to be clear, you're buying it sometimes with OPM, other yes. people's money. So again, I just I want to connect multiple dots here: the importance of relationships. Right, the there importance of investing in your education so that you know about these things. Walk us through an actual burn investment that you did and how it worked. So when I when I got out of law enforcement, I was working full time in real estate. I had a, a good chunk of my own capital saved up. So what I would do is I would go buy anywhere from three to five houses at a time, and they were all fixer uppers, and I would. I really, I was using my own money for those. But if anything came in in addition to that, I would borrow money from somebody else. So we already had an agreement set up. At that time, I was paying 8% interest to borrow someone's money that was guaranteed by David. I would take the money that they let me borrow and I would use that to, to finance, sorry, to rehab the house, to fix it up. So I bought the houses with my money, but you could use a hard money lender. There's lots of places you could get money. I would take the money that I borrowed from somebody else to rehab them when they were worth more because they were done, I would go to the bank and they would say, okay, we will let you borrow 75% of whatever it appraises for. I would take the money out of them. I would pay back the money that I borrowed to fix it up. I would recover either my capital or the majority of my capital, sometimes a little bit more than my own capital if they appraised high enough. I would use that to buy the next three to five properties that I had lined up and written offers on and was negotiating while that was going on. Now, I had it down at that time where it was very tight ship. I was getting the money back quick. I was redeploying it quick. A lot of people will jump in and say, but, but, but it takes me six months to refinance or, but I can't get it done that fast. That's okay. It doesn't matter if you can do it perfectly efficient where the money is rolling over every 45 days. What I would say is, are you better off to buy a couple of them a year than none of them a year? Don't so many people get hung up on I can't do it perfectly, so I'm not gonna do it. But you never get to where you can do it perfectly until you've done it a lot. So I had many deals like what I was kind of targeting was buying it around sixty thousand, having a rehab somewhere around thirty thousand. So I was all in for roughly ninety to a hundred. 
And I wanted an appraisal that was going to come back somewhere between 120 and 130. That was a very doable number at several different markets in the South, the Southeast of the United States. And it gave me this sort of... The deals don't always have to be exactly the same, but I had a nice target. I'm looking for something I'm buying in the 60 to 70 range. I see a lot of these houses. I can start to tell, wow, that one's 1,400 square feet. Most of these aren't that big. Why is that one so big? Or, man, this house is in a really good part of town. I don't see anything over here in the 60s. What's the deal with that one? And there's always a reason. There's a sewage problem, a dry rot problem, a roofing problem. And as an investor, what you're looking for are the problems. You can't be in the mindset of, I don't want to deal with a headache. The headache is what earns you the right to get the money. So I would finally find the problem, get really excited that I identified why that deal was good, take it to my contractor and say, how much do we got to pay to fix this? And if he gave me a number that was way higher than that $30,000 range, I didn't buy the house. Or my offer was written very low to cover it. And if the number that they gave me made sense, that was a project that I moved forward with. And it just became very simple. I'm going to ask you a question again, because we want to teach to the top of the class. And I want people to understand what it now looks like, especially from where you came from. Mm-hmm. I, I heard you on a podcast on Bigger Pockets talk about your system for buying houses. And how well oiled it is, and how it can literally take just like a few hours of your time to take the whole thing down. Walk us through what that system looks like. And the specific reason I want to ask this is also because one of the commitments of the one thing is moving from E to P, okay, moving from being entrepreneurial to being purposeful. So instead of just relying on your natural ability, pausing and asking, how do I benchmark and model what the best do and put a system in place that allows you to achieve more? Walk us through what that system looks like. So I developed this system while I was working as a police officer. And I knew I did not have a ton of time to do everything myself. I've got a couple seconds in the day at different parts where I can check, pull out my phone, check my messages, make a decision, go back to working. So I didn't have the luxury of sitting at a computer and doing all the work myself, which was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I started asking, who can do this for me? And frankly, who is better at doing it than me? And I I came up with this concept of what I call the core four, which are the four people that I would need in any market that that would allow me to buy houses and I would never have to go see it. The first person was a deal finder. That's usually a real estate agent, but it could be a wholesaler or someone else. The second person was a contractor. I was going to need someone to go and do work and fix up the properties I bought. The third was a property manager. That was my advisor. Which part of town do I want to buy in? What can I expect to get in the rents? And I would use them to verify the information that everyone else gave me. You don't want to rely on just one person's information. And the last was a lender. I would need someone to finance it. So I would start off by finding those four people. And I would usually get to the agent first. And then they would bring me referrals for the other ones. And then they would bring me referrals for others. And I'd build up a people, a group of people that had a good reputation. Then I would create a system that I could give to someone else to understand my thought matrix. You can't do it if it's just this gut feeling you get that only you understand. You got to get out of your own head. So I, I basically realized there's three criteria. I want it to cash flow. I want it to be in a good neighborhood. Nothing below a C-class. And I needed to be all in for 75% of the after repair value. So once it was appraised after being fixed up, it, let's say that's worth 120, I could be all in for 90,000. And all in was basically my rehab plus my purchase price. So what I had was the first person who I'm communicating with is the agent. Okay. 
I would let them know, here's my criteria. Go find me properties in these neighborhoods that are in really bad shape that you think, which on your basic criteria, would be 75% of the ARV. And I knew at the price range I gave them, they were likely going to cash flow. I didn't have to look into that too much in the beginning. So they would send me an address and why they like the deal. I would pull my phone out, copy that text message, paste it to the property manager and send it. And they were trained to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down emoji. Meaning I've looked in the area and I like it or I don't like it. And I do agree that the ARV is close to what the agent is telling us. Anything that was a thumbs down, I never looked at again. The thumbs up stuff, I would send to the contractor. He knew when he got a text from me with an address, he would pass it on to one of the people in the office and they would look up to see what's the approximate scope of work on this deal based off what we can see on Zillow. And he would call my agent to get information that they didn't have. My agent would also take videos of the property that she liked when she walked it, which could then be forwarded to the contractor. So they did a lot of talking that I didn't have to be involved in. The contractor would send me a thumbs up or a thumbs down emoji based on, is the scope of work going to cost what it would have to for this to meet your criteria? At that point, when they had all seen it, that's when I would actually look at it. I'd get home that night, 2 or 3 in the morning. I'd look it up on Zillow. I'd I'd bounce it by a couple other people just to see what they thought. And if they liked it, I would have the agent send me over the offer, which I could just sign by pushing a button on DocuSign on my phone. Few minutes at a time, seconds sometimes. But a lot of work was being done. So I wasn't doing this cavalierly. That is a very good example of putting a system in place so that you can get more done in less time. And the thing that I love about it is, I mean, everything we talk about is about what's the 20% that drives the 80%. And within the 20%, what's the 20% of the 20% of the 20% until you get to the one thing. I love how you said, I realized I was missing my core four. A deal finder, a contractor, a a property manager, and a lender. And of all those four, if I could only start with one, it's the agent because the agent can make it easier or unnecessary to actually go hunt the others because they can make the intros. And you establish that system so that that whole process of finding the deal and signing the offer could take you less than an hour. Mm -hmm. And then I'm imagining... If the offer, then the, uh, walk me through the offer acceptance and negotiation. Like the agent's doing most of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. She's going to send off the offer. Some of the listing agents aren't even going to reply because it's obviously a lower offer than they were hoping for. So, side note, I started adding as part of the criteria I want you to focus on anything that's been sitting on the market at least 50% longer than the average time on market. Mm. Because I knew that sellers, if this house has been on market for 5 days, even if it's a mess, they don't feel like it's a mess. They don't feel that, I got to get rid of this thing. They're still in a greed state of mind. So by making that adjustment, we eliminated a lot of the work that everyone was doing analyzing properties that I was never going to buy. So that was one thing. She would then compile a list of all the replies that we got And we would have a phone call every three to four days. And she would just fill me in this address. This is why you liked it. This is what they said. And a lot of those just weren't going to hit our numbers. So I said, okay, put them on, like make a reminder to check in with them in two weeks and see if they change their mind. For those that did sound like, hey, they might want to play ball here, I would, that's really when my real analysis took place. That's when I sat down and I actually ran the ROI. What would it be? I really looked at, do I love this neighborhood or can I live with it? Or is this something that's going to be a bigger problem? I 
would get on the property manager, get him on the phone and say, Hey, what's it like in this neighborhood? Are you getting a lot of tenants that want to live here? Or is this a problem? And things would pop up that you hadn't seen on the preliminary analysis. Sometimes they'd say, well, you're really next to the naval base. So you can get some good tenants if you go with the military. But if it's not military, it's going to be a problem. This is high crime. Like, and I would, ah, I don't want to, I don't want to risk it. So I wouldn't buy those properties. But what I noticed most people do is they jump in and do a full analysis on every single property. And they get three to four done in a day if they work hard. That they really have no business analyzing that hard because you don't have a motivated seller and you don't have all the people on your team saying, yes, let's move forward with it. So that was where I noticed that I wasn't really digging in deep until it had gone through several stages of, hey, this looks really good. Yeah. And again, I, I keep coming back to this lead domino of relationships. Because if you had the relationship with the agents who could find you actual deals, you had the relationships with quality contractors that could give you a fair estimate and a fair price and do good work. You had the relationship with good property managers. You had the relationship with good lenders. You had the relationship with other people that if you couldn't get traditional financing, could at least lend you the money on short term so you could take it down and then refinance it and pay it back. It all came down to the relationships. And yes, and the lender particularly. So they're taking... I mean, we all look at lenders and we get frustrated with them. But we forget, hey, this person's giving you $400,000 and they don't know you're going to pay it back. You need to have a strong relationship with that person for them to feel comfortable. So one of the things I would do is I would put money on deposit with those banks. Like I'd put a $25,000 CD or a $10,000 certificate of deposit with a with a bank. And if the board of directors came back and said, we don't know, he's already got a lot of rentals. What if he can't pay? That loan officer could say, he just put $20,000 on deposit with us, which will cover him for three years of payments. Made it a lot easier for them to say, oh, this is great. And then once we had done a couple years worth of stuff, then they felt really comfortable with me. It became much easier to get things green-lighted. But most of us make the mistake of looking for the person that in the very first interaction, they do everything you want, they trust you completely. And if they don't, you give up. Think big, go small, trust the dominoes will fall. David, based on everything you've learned when it comes to your wealth building journey the last several years, what's one thing you hope somebody listening to this episode does such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary? I would say get honest with yourself about your fears and where they're coming from and be objective and say, are these realistic? I mean, a lot of not super smart people have made a lot of money in real estate just by buying and waiting. Here's, here's a question I ask people, Jeff. Think back to anyone you've ever met that bought a house 30 years ago. Can you think of one person that ever said, I wish I wouldn't have bought it. It was terrible. I lost a ton of money. No, they all say, I wish I would have bought more. Yeah. I don't know a person who doesn't say, I should have bought more houses. 100% of them. Let alone they don't regret it. Okay, But every single human being that I represent in a transaction at the time they're going through the escrow has nothing but fears. Huge things are made out of really small stuff because it's scary. And if you zoom out and you give yourself this 30-year perspective and you ask yourself the question, 30 years from now, will I be glad that I went to the gym and got on the treadmill? 30 years from now, will I be glad that I saved that money that I wanted to go to Vegas with and invested it in something. 30 years from now, will I be glad I bought this house? And you force yourself to have this conversation with you in 30 years where you got to say, Hey, sorry, bro. I spent all your money on something. I don't even remember what it was anymore. It, it brings a lot more of that clarity and it makes it easier to make the right decisions. I love that. I love that. Well, David, where can people learn more about you? 
Thanks, Jeff. Um, I'm on Bigger Pockets. So if you guys don't know about biggerpockets.com, please check out that website. We do a, a podcast as well. We recently had Jeff on there and he crushed it. I'm also on all social media at David Green24. Instagram's probably the one I can get back to people the most. And what about if if people, where where exactly is your agent business? Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm in Northern California. So the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area and the Sacramento markets. If you live anywhere near me, you want to buy or sell a house, you want a career in real estate or loans, please reach out to me as well. We're looking to hire. And a lot of the stuff that you and I talked about, Jeff, is exactly what we talk about on my team. Well, there you have it. Our conversation with David Green, co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, real estate investor and KW agent. Folks, this this episode was one I was I was really looking forward to sharing with you because it is, I mean, his journey. We're really talking about the last five years. And I've heard Gary say, you can be anywhere you want in five years. And if you think about the things you want in your life to think that in just five years, you could have those, kind of hard to believe. Yet you look at David's journey. He set a goal. He got clear on what he was going to say yes to, which made it a lot easier to say no to other things. The things that the people in his circle at the time were saying yes to, going to Vegas, going out. He said yes to having a relationship with his goals. He said yes to investing in his education. And by doing those things, it set him down this path where you fast forward, this is where he is. And he grew into the conversations that he was able to share with you today. So here's our question for you. Where do you want to be in five years? And based on that, what's one thing you can do? Such as by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. If you, uh, he did not mention this, but he did write a book on Burr investing. If you Google the Burr book, B with four R's, the Burr book, you'll learn more about it there. Our sincere hope is that this episode inspires you to take a fresh look at your goals. If you've yet to set your goals this upcoming weekend, we have our virtual goal setting retreat for individuals and teams. You can go to the one thing.com slash set my goals to join us. This will be recorded and available through the end of the year. So if you want to revisit your goals and think about the things that David shared today, please join us, the one thing.com slash set my goals. If this episode has brought value to you, please share it with one person. Subscribe to the show and consider leaving us a rating and review. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.